Hello and welcome to the Palladium Podcast, episode 27. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvee, editor at Palladium Magazine. Um, this week, we're joined by our guest, Nikita Zimov, from the Pleistocene Park Project in eastern Siberia. He's going to tell us about what they're doing there to restore the mammoth steppe ecosystem um, as a grand experiment to help solve global warming. Uh, it's a project that I'm very interested in. Uh, it, it's very exciting. And I think it's the right kind of approach to this sort of problem. I attended a talk by Nikita some time ago, I think I think possibly a year ago. Uh, I found it fascinating. And, and so I'm glad to have gotten uh, gotten the chance to bring him on the podcast here. So Nikita, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you Wolf, for inviting. And yes, uh, I'm ready to answer some of the questions. Great. All right. Um, yeah. So if you could give us an overview of the project, I guess, to start with. So what, what are you guys trying to do and why? So very briefly, we are reviving high productive grazing ecosystems in the Arctic. And for the reasons that, first of all, that's to take nature to its original state. Right. And secondly, uh, and more importantly, we argue that that's a way to mitigate climate change. Right. And, and so the theory behind this is that in the ice age, the mammoth steppe ecosystem had very high biological productivity, very high sequestration of carbon. Um, and and it was human hunting that, that disrupted this ecosystem. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, pretty much steppe ecosystems, high productive steppe ecosystems dominated worldwide. So pretty much on all continents, we are high productive grazing ecosystems. Uh, now, uh, I think only in Africa they are left. And for people, it's hard to believe that something that you can now see only in Serengeti, we are on most of the places, and including our very remote and very cold region. Right, yeah. So so even in Siberia, you had kind of uh, vast herds of, of, you know, bison, mammoths, reindeer, all kinds of animals, um, the way, yeah, you see only in Africa now. Yeah, that, so that's correct, and that's uh, something that was changed with human activity. So uh, this ecosystem was stable for hundreds of thousands of years and uh, persisted uh, multiple glacial and interglacial cycles. And only when first humans appeared and uh, developed their tools, uh, the, this ecosystem vanished. Yeah, so, so was that um, sort of, we're out of the Ice Age now, or, or sort of, at least in an interglacial period that's that's quite warm. Um, how connected is the current climate to that shift in the style of ecosystem? Like, I know the usual story is that the climate warmed up and that changed the ecosystem and made it different. But I think a story that's sort of suggested, at least to me, by by the account of, of humans over over hunting these animals is that uh, human activity changing uh, the, the way the ecosystem worked changed uh, w- would have had an effect on the climate because this this ecosystem was it, it, it sequestered a lot of carbon and and so I'm I'm curious to get your take as a scientist on that like how much uh, how much is the climate now affected by that change that was that was caused by humans uh, well what we are facing in the last century or two is uh, mostly caused by the fossil fuels of course. Uh, but in general, the 
previous uh, interglacial periods looked uh, roughly uh, the same. So it was uh, ice age with abrupt uh, climate warming. So there was a spike in temperature and probably due to the ocean circulation uh, activity. And, and that was 13,000 years ago? Uh, well, let's say uh, 100,000 years ago, then before that, uh, yes. And then on average, what, 100, 120,000 years, I think, was the average duration of the glacial interglacial cycle. So the previous, it was sharp warming, and then gradual, gradual decline down to the new ice age. And the Holocene was dif is different that, so the modern uh, interglacial, which is called Holocene, which started, what, 14,000 years ago, and then there was this another uh, cold event. Uh, but in the last 10,000 years, instead of the gradual cooling, uh, we see that the climate been extremely stable. So very untypical for this is quite untypical. And, and is, is that, do you think, connected to the, this change in ecosystem that, that we would have caused with, with hunting? Well, let's say that would be my feeling. I would say that I don't have any direct proofs for that, but in frames of the theory which we support, uh, we think that the ecosystem change and this uh, massive extinction and change in this ecosystem function and replacements of uh, grasslands and steppes by uh, forests and probably degradation of some soils over the last 10,000 years, I think that could be, uh, could be the reason. Right, because yeah, we got a lot of uh, desertification as well at the, at the same time through this process. Yes, so I think as far as I know, uh, Sahara did not exist, exist 5,000 years ago. Right. Yeah, I mean, even, even in historical times, uh, I, think, I think there's classical accounts of people bringing animals across the Sahara and, and you know, there being grass and, and oases in many places that there aren't now. Yeah, so uh, deserts are growing and that's indeed the problem. And I think that's uh, quite a big effect well, it's, I, I think it's mostly humans to blame in terms of the very poor uh, land management. So the grazing right. practices and the farming practices haven't been always uh, good and sustainable in the last 10,000 years. Yeah, whereas the uh, mammoths managed it very sustainably. <laughs> yeah, so the wild ecosystems, not only mammoths, but the wild ecosystems where there was herbivores, birds, predators, all this... Uh, and manage to sustain and be kind of friendly with the nature. Right. So, yeah. So can we um, go a little bit into how we know that the, that the ecosystem was like that? I remember um, hearing something about how you had done experiments where the permafrost is thawing, looking at the number of animal bones that were coming out and, and thereby kind of getting, getting estimates of, how productive this ecosystem was. As I said, there was uh, grazing ecosystems uh, on most of the planet, but the most information we actually have about our region and ecosystems of the Mama Step ecosystem. And the reason that in our region we do have permafrost, and permafrost is a good way to preserve something that died 10,000 to 20,000 or 50,000 years ago. And all the animals and all the grasses and remains of these grasses and animals can still be found in the permafrost. And in our region, there are sometimes 
places where lakes or rivers eroding those sediments. And in these sediments you can find lots of uh, bones and remains of organic matter, which is organic carbon, which is stored in the permafrost, which is now the big threat to the climate change, actually. And uh, getting uh, these materials allow you to actually do some analysis and estimate and understand how the ecosystem which laid this, uh, left these remains were functioning. It's like, imagine you are excavating, coming to the graveyard and excavating the uh, bodies and testing them to see how the town uh, two centuries right. ago was functioning. So something similar. Uh, we come to the shore and we collect bones and we collect the material and soil and the permafrost samples and we analyze that and we can get uh, have the understanding of what type of vegetation was there, what type of animals were there, and we even managed to estimate uh, what was the density of animals. Okay, and and what was the density? Like how how productive was this ecosystem? So we estimated that on each square kilometer of pastures, on average over the thirty thousand year period, there were about ten ton biomass of big herbivores which is uh, one mammoth, five bison, eight horses, and around 15 reindeer. Also on, on every, on every, on square, every kilometer. square kilometer. Yeah. So uh, it's, uh, I think also was about one wolf and maybe one lion pure five square kilometers. Right. And, and how does that compare to modern uh, ecosystem productivities and animal densities? So in some African uh national park it's similar in some it's higher uh i know that in this uh, dutch national park oster plus and i cannot pronounce the name of the of the dutch dutch names are very hard for russians to pronounce okay <laughs> uh it's but there is i think was more than 50 ton per square kilometer so in in the article we had 10 i think there at some point they had up to 50. uh and potentially as we estimated, the limiting factor for the productivity were the precipitation. So uh, amounts of rain were limiting the harvest and the harvest was limiting the number of animals. So that was the, the main limiting factor. If uh, precipitation increased, there was increase in number of animals and vice versa. So um, fairly efficient ecosystem in terms of turning precipitation into grass and into animals. Yes. So in the kind of in the wild, according to a famous uh, Russian ecologist and founder of ecology, Vernadsky, uh, any wild ecosystem would tend to use 100 percent of available resources. So a, any system tend to expand to obtain every single resource possible. So same with uh, with the wild ecosystems there in the Arctic. They used as much sun as was available and as much precipitation as was available. And but and I suppose that would be true of the modern ecosystem as well. But the modern ecosystem in that area does not have the productivity in terms of animal biomass. And that's because of sort of the, the dominance now of trees. Uh, there is not... I wouldn't even say that trees are the dominant. There is There are trees, there are some shrubs, some evergreen shrubs, some mosses, some lichen. Uh, overall, the assemblage of plants is uh, completely different uh, and well do of dominant plants is completely different because you can still s find uh, I think majority of the 
vegetation which was there in the Pleistocene, you can still find in the Arctic. They are just much more sparse. Right. So their functioning, their main uh, difference between the ecosystem back then and the ecosystems now are the turnover of the uh, biomass and of nutrients. Mm -hmm. So in the high productive grazing ecosystems, the whole system is operated to the extremely, extremely fast nutrient cycling. So everything that grow should be almost immediately eaten, decayed, and put into the growth again. Right, because there's animals running around eating everything. Yes, and uh, this, with, let's say, the same uh, molecule of nitrogen, which is always limiting, uh, limiting for productivity. Yeah. It's nitrogen. It's, if you add nitrogen anywhere in the Arctic, you will immediately see the increase in productivity. So that's the main uh, deficit. So that's the main currency, the main money in this ecosystem. And the, the faster is the turnover of your money, it's like in the business, in the economy. The faster is turnover, the, the, the more powerful is your, is your economy. And the modern ecosystem, their function is totally different. They don't need much nutrients and they are slowing the, the cycling as much as possible. So these are very slowly growing plants with very slow decomposition rates and pretty much no animals can benefit from that. Mm -hmm. And the problem that for us, that sequestration of carbon in the modern ecosystems are rather slow. Uh, in the Arctic, unlike in the tropics, you can really store a lot of carbon in the soil. So right. soils are cold, soils are often dry or maybe even water saturated, but they're cold. And decomposition is very slow. And in the tropical climate, they are not capable of storing as much carbon because it was decomposed much, much faster. Yeah, there's a very fast soil turnover in, in yeah. the tropics. But the problem is that in the modern Arctic ecosystems, uh, the roots are not developing deep. Most of the plants, so moss doesn't really have any roots. Even the large yeah. trees, they do not grow their roots deep. They, all the roots of large tree are growing along the surface of the ground. So right. they're like spreading aside. To the left and to the right of the of the root, uh, so not deep. And if you dig maybe 20 centimeters down, you will already see that there is very little organic matter. Right. But uh, grasses and herbs they are different. First of all, they are very rapidly growing, and so if since they are rapidly growing, they need lots of photos well, they photosynthesize a lot. For photosynthesis, you use you use lots of water. And once you're using lots of water, you're drying out the soil horizon quite rapidly. And since it's getting dry, the roots are growing deeper and deeper. And roots and grasses and herbs, they're developing much more deep root system. And if you replace mosses by grasses, you get much more carbon uptaken from the atmosphere and, and uh, located in the ground. In the cold right, in the, in the root soil, systems. where it is uh, very slowly decomposing and also it's protected from fires. Right. Because the big problem, you know, I think most of you heard that in the last uh, years there have been a huge problem in Russia with forest fires. So with the climate change, drier summers and more lightning strikes everywhere, uh, there is much more uh, areas of forest is getting burned. So, yeah, this is a problem everywhere. Yeah, if, if it's a problem... You know, in some regions, it's more profitable to grow uh, trees than grasses because trees 
stems can store more carbon in the stems rather than in the soil or than grasses in the soil. It's not true for, for our region, but in the more southern, southern. But also there, you, let's say, you spent 50 years growing trees there and you did a good job, but then someone came with a match or the lightning strike and within one day it's all gone. Right, it's all back in the atmosphere. Yes, and if you have uh, grasses, uh, their roots are deep in the ground and they're protected from fires. Right. So there is no forest fire. So that's a quite sustainable way to sequester carbon. So how did the animals um, promote the growth of the grasses over these shrubs and mosses and lichens and so on? What, what is the role of the animals in this ecosystem that, um, that, that makes the, the, the critical change? So uh, let's see. I think the revolution in the ecology happened around 20 million years ago. So before that, majority of plants we are uh, protecting and we are competing against. It's like predator-prey uh, communication between uh, herbivores, between animals which eat plants and plants. So the plants we are trying to get either tall or poisonous or very spiky, and we are uh, spending lots of resources defending themselves against herbivores. Or well, any animals which would eat the plant, and I think around 20 million years ago appeared first grasses, which used totally different uh, strategy. They decided that we they don't want to spend resources on uh, being uh, poisonous, or being uh, have spikes, or being extremely tall, and they would rather invest everything into the rapid growth and compete not with the animals, but compete with other plants through the animals. Right. So trees and grass are also competing against each other. So trees are growing deep, uh, growing tall, and they are creating a shade, and they take all the photosynthesis. And, right. here, and grasses, they cannot directly compete against trees, but with animals, they can. So they are feeding animals, and animals are fighting with the other slowly growing plants. So, so do the animals eat the, the tree seedlings or knock over the trees or something? How does that work? Uh, let's see. Animals cannot uh, break tall trees. If there is a thousand-year-old oak, even the mammoths cannot break it. But no new oak will be growing if there are animals present. Because they eat it. Uh, they can eat it. They, they step on it. Mostly they step, they break. And all the mosses, uh, lichens, they cannot resist the, uh, well, not even grazing, just presence of animals. If you step on the moss 10 times, the moss is dead. If you, if you eat grasses, the grasses will just uh, grow faster. So that's a different reaction. Right, and right. The longer the animals present, the more, the better the grass is growing and the worse the rest of the vegetation is growing until the grasses become the dominant vegetation right so the, so the grasses have a very symbiotic relationship with the animals they they are not as badly impacted by having their leaves eaten um and being stepped on whereas all the other plants are very much investing in uh, a longer term strategy that that gets wrecked by getting stepped on well here it's also it's not only animals because you know when you think uh about animals you think well why why in the cow pasture we often see the different like different story where there's desertification happening and soils are collapsing and 
here we need not only animals, we need to like, introduce full ecosystem. We need to have herbivores, different types of herbivores, and most importantly, we need to have predators. Because uh, main job of predators is not even eat the weakest ones. It's actually they are shaping the grazing behavior of animals. They're, they're chasing them around. Yes, so if there is no predators present, all the I know, cows, uh, sheep, deer, bison, any, any plant, any, any animal, would be hanging out where the juiciest grass and very soon they will kill even the grass or they will they will turn it, this place into mud and all other places where the grass is not that great will be overgrown by weeds and then eventually animals would move and destroy this place as well so the idea that predators they chasing animals around as you said and yeah this way animals cannot have overgrazing in any place right because as soon as as soon as they're settled down somewhere there's predators coming to chase them away yes as soon as there is a crowd of animals there will be predators so animals are spread around and they're moving and in this way the vegetation is uh being grazed much better right so so the the grass then is is not grazed too much but is is being occasionally stirred up a little bit enough to wipe out the longer term sort of shrubs and mosses and so on um, while preserving the grasses. Yeah, so the grasses, grasses are alright if you eat them. It's not alright if you step on the ground so much that you actually damage the root system. Okay, so that makes sense. And and so humans basically ate all the animals. We were too good at being predators, at chasing them around and so on. Um, and, and this disrupted the ecosystem. And so now today we see... Um, we, we see the more shrubby, mossy ecosystem. It's, uh, at least for the Arctic, I think it was uh, not even exactly like that. Uh, it's, first of all, you know, it's very hard for people to imagine that primitive humans with spears could come and kill every single animal. Right. Uh, and I think that's really kind of true. That would be very hard to survive in the ecosystem where there would be left, I don't know, uh, one mammoth per hundred square kilometers. People don't have any ways to move fast, they have only spears, and in low density of animals, uh, they cannot survive in the Arctic. So the hunting techniques, I think, allowed them to do, uh, <clears throat> be efficient only when the animals were really abundant. Right. And what I think what they did, they re- just dropped the number of animals 10 times, roughly. Yeah. And kept it at this level for extended period of time. I think in the past they were multiple occasions with some uh, climate events, maybe with some diseases, when the populations of animals dropped 10, 10 times. It's a normal situation for the wild wildlife. Yeah, ecosystems do that all the time. Yes. and But the problem that humans came and they dropped it 10 times and they kept it low for the long period of time. And the thing happened that, uh, as I said, grasses like when they're trampled and, well, not that they like it, but they resist it, and other plants don't. And if you have animals, grasses have a competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. But if you drop the number of animals, it appears that there is not enough to maintain those pastures, and grasses lose the competitive advantage. Right. Slowly, I think over decades and centuries, probably took centuries, uh, new vegetation appeared in the Arctic, and it spread. And slowly the grasses became kind of pushed back and dominant ecosystems became to look like in the modern Arctic. So it's moss, lichen, 
uh, shrubs, uh, large trees, and the sad reality that in this ecosystem, uh, no mammoth can actually live. Right. So it can live there in the summer, but you need to pass through I don't know, eight months of the winter, which is quite cold, and you need to maintain your body. And to maintain your body, you need uh, high energy food. Yeah. And the modern ecosystems does not does not provide high energy food. So I would think that um, last mammoth on the continent died not because of the spear, but because of starvation. So humans didn't didn't drive ex- animals to extinction. They drove ecosystem to extinction. And without this ecosystem, many animals in the Arctic cannot live. And and so there's sort of um, two equilibria then. There's an equilibrium where there's animals and grass. And when pushed out of that equilibrium by humans and, and the animals basically starved to death and are unable to survive in the more uh, shrubby, mossy ecosystem, the animals are unable to come back if the hunting pressure is relieved. Like I, I think now we're no longer kind of hunting them as aggressively as we were. Um, but they're not coming back on their own. Uh, I think you're actually wrong. Uh, first of all, uh, hunting pressure never really went down entirely. Oh, okay. So, and both in Siberia and even, uh, I think, also in Alaska and Canada. And moreover, you know, the problem that uh, in the modern uh, governmental, uh, how and the kind of old scientists and uh, how the governmental policies are working, uh, as soon as animals increase in numbers enough to actually start to convert the ecosystems back to the original state, all people start to yell, oh, so much deer, they're killing the trees, let's hunt them down. And that's actually quite American vision. I heard that from many American uh, scientists very often, so that the deers are so horrible that they're killing the trees. Yeah, no, I've definitely heard that kind of thing. That, yeah, you need to hunt hunt to cull the animals to keep them at a lower population level. Yeah, so uh, at the modern vision, the number of animals in the wild, in the, let's say, Northern America and in Eurasia are considered to be, let's say, probably 100 times lower than it used to be in the Pleistocene. And people think that it's a normal and the right way. So our memory lasts, let's say, three, three centuries ago. And we think that how it was three centuries ago, before, I don't know, first settlers first white people came to the north well maybe i know four centuries ago whatever yeah but in some cases i mean not even that we sort of consider the current wild parts i I mean uh, among sort of the less sophisticated the the current wild parts are sort of considered to be wild not remembering even that you know even 200 years ago there were bison there yeah yeah that that's that's true good point so uh, what we see as a wild is very often not a wild at all, and majority of the species there are invasive species. Uh, I'm talking about plants. And uh, what we are preserving actually does not really give us any benefits. Right, yeah, so we're, we're making a choice to kind of hold a, hold a particular ecosystem in stasis that's kind of in some way a post-apocalyptic ecosystem where we've wiped out all the animals and the thing's no longer working properly. Yeah, let's say I couldn't say it better. So then I guess the the rationale for your project uh, immediately falls out of that, which is you guys are trying to demonstrate the the feasibility and value of this much higher animal density ecosystem mode. Yeah. So as you said, uh, there is two modes and you can visually see that as uh, imagine there is a big hill and there is two valleys in between them. Right. And uh, let's say if you have a, a round stone 
and you it's located in one of the valleys you roll it a little bit left to a little bit right within the valley and it will roll down to the depression and so that's a stable state so you change the uh, change the climate a little bit or change the number of plants or animals just a little bit and but the system will stabilize back and the idea is to roll this stone from one valley into another valley because when you roll it up the hill, very up the hill, and let it go, it will slide, uh, roll down on the other side of the hill and appear in the, in the different valley. Mm -hmm. So one is a low productive uh, condition, another is high productive condition, and they're both quite stable. So, <clears throat> so with animals present, the ecosystem was sustaining for millions of years. And same with uh, tundra, you know, for the last 10,000 years, tundra being stable, forest tundra being extremely stable, both in Finland and in our region where the climate is actually quite different. So we have very different precipitation levels. So it, it won't it won't spontaneously revert to the, the wild state. It is it is a bit complicated. I think if we would really, really uh, leave those regions alone for very long, uh, for, I know, for several centuries, at least, maybe even more. Uh, there might be uh, animals might repopulate back to the numbers where they would be able to really convert the ecosystem. Because now, as soon as there is a little bit, animals start to increase the numbers, the hunting starts immediately. Yeah. And so I think in the, if you will leave the Arctic for centuries, uh, the grazing ecosystems will recover themselves. But the problem that we don't have those centuries. And uh, the, the extinction, which happened uh, 10,000 years ago, uh, led that there is we are quite many animals uh, went to extinction. So like mammoths, woolly rhinoceros, and in North America, horses disappeared. In uh, Eurasia, bison disappeared. And without, let's say, introduction of those species to the new place, even with, within the sun, within several centuries, that would, wouldn't still be a very efficient ecosystem because number of her different types of herbivores wouldn't be sufficient. Okay, and, and so you're really trying to, with the Pleistocene Park project, really force the transition to the high productivity mode by bringing in lots of different types of animals, grazing animals, having them there all year and having them kind of reproduce on that land and, and transition it to the grassy mode. Yes. Um, so, so what kind of animals have you brought in? What does the what does the site look like? Like, where are you doing this? Um, how, how does the project itself work? So, the project is located. It's uh, uh, northeastern Russia. Uh, it's actually not very far from from Alaska. Uh, it's in the Koloma River lowland. Uh, we have fenced about two thousand hectares of of land, which is what, which is four and a half thousand acres of fence territory, and there we are bringing animals, uh, let's say the ones which either lived there in the past in the Pleistocene, or the animals which we think after some adaptation can live in this region now in the modern climate. Right. So, for example, muskox uh, are extinct in that area, but not totally extinct. Yeah. Whereas certain types of camels are are totally extinct uh the camels we did not have any camels in our region but i think that in the modern climate with the abundance of willow shrub i think uh that might be a good uh 
animal to try to bring and see how they would do. So I think camels are, let's say, now are now top three priority list to bring for the future. I don't plan to bring a lot, just you know, several of them, and to help and see how they do. Yes, just see how they do. It's really like like throwing a bunch of animals into this fenced region and and seeing how they do and seeing what impact they have on the, on the climate there on the ecosystem. Uh, close to that, we of course uh, not like we are uh, throwing them in and letting them you know survive on their own, since uh, we are locating them not in the high productive grazing ecosystem, but in the location where they're supposed to convert into this right. landscape. We, uh, in the winter, supplement animals with food. And for the animals which are brought from the southern regions, we build like little shelters where they can hide when it's extremely cold. Right. This morning I was contact talking with my <coughs> worker in the park, who is the kind of main responsible for animals. And he said that tonight was minus 50. Wow. And yeah celsius so it's an extremely cold winter this year so uh, for the late february it's uh, quite anomaly and uh, he said that uh, bison horses and white wizard are doing all right and they kind of deal with that cold and the uh, more domesticated uh, cows sheep and yaks are hiding in the shelters okay cool so so you've you've given them actually some some infrastructure and, and some support to, to really yeah you know if you bring animals which been first of all many of the animals been uh, domesticated and their genetics is not that great and their ability to adapt there is not that good but if you give them time if you support them for a year two or three maybe or the newborn babies of these animals will do better in this new environment. So we are, let's say, giving everyone a chance to adapt and see which ones are good. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're sort of like animals sometimes develop differently depending on which climates they're they're kind of raised in. Yes. Right. Okay. So that's that's how the project works, um, and and it's associated with your science station there in in northwestern Siberia as well. Uh, yeah. So our main job is the research station. We are scientists and we are uh, running one of the largest Arctic research stations. And uh, that's actually the main uh, source of funding for the Poison Park. So Poison Park is pretty much the, our own initiative and the money which we raise running the research station and hosting lots of international research, we are channeling to develop the Poison Park. So that's our Kind of main kind of project hobby slash project of the station <laughs> right so that's we are trying to revive the high productive grazing ecosystems and fight and save world from the climate change right yeah yeah and 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 did you grow up in that region i i remember uh seeing your talk you had pictures of of you and your father kind of out in the yeah uh so the project, uh, the station itself, uh, research, not a scientific station, uh, was founded by my father, Sergei Zimov, and he is also the main, uh, the founder of the Python Park, and he's the main person developing the whole, uh, whole science and philosophy behind the Python Park. So I'm pretty much just, let's say, I'm the muscles of the project. <laughs> right, the, the, the muscle and, and seemingly the front man. So... Uh, yes, I was brought to the Arctic when I was two, so I grew up on the research station and I left for the high school and then university from 14 to 20 and at 20 I graduated, uh, got the bachelor degree and 
uh, moved back to the station to help my father and since then working there and now taking off pretty much all the duties on the station and in the park. And so how would you say the, the Pleistocene Park project is going? It, uh, I mean, you've been at it for, for some years now. Um, what do the results look like in terms of, um, you know, effect on the permafrost, effect on the vegetation, how are the animals doing, all that kind of stuff? I would say in the park, we have within those uh, 2,000 hectares area, we have uh, smaller fenced areas which have been fenced since 1997, so for 23 years already. And there you can already quite well see that the, uh, the landscape is changing. And uh, in many places that you see, what we get, you know, we always been using the term uh, mama step, mama step, but according to what I see, what we now have in the park, it looks much more like a savanna. So it's uh, uh, maybe about one meter tall shrubs, sparse shrubs with lots of grass in between. Right. So quite nice landscape. I actually like savannas more than steps. And they look nice. Uh, I cannot say that anywhere in the park we already have, uh, let's say, 100% converted areas. But I do see that, see that in many places, so in the shrublands, even in the forest areas, uh, we do have uh, that the changes are happening. Uh, we see that, let's say, grasses are now growing next to the trees, which never happened anywhere in the wild nature in our region. So if it's a, right. if it's a large trees, it was always, always be moss. Now it's grasses growing in between the, tree, the trees, which is quite good. Uh, we also, I noticed that, you know, 10 years ago, when I was in the summer walking through the Pleistocene Park, I always had to wear rubber boots. It's always been extremely, extremely wet. The soils are always water saturated. So the drainage is poor because of the permafrost. Located yeah, well, and, and, and a lot of a lot of Siberia is like that. I, I yeah. often see yeah. see those those vehicles that that your Russians have come up with to deal with the wet wet summer uh, in in Siberia. These these sort of cars that are halfway between a boat and a car and sort of swimming through the dirt. Yeah, there is a uh, lot of uh, wetlands. So Russia, uh, I think, it's holding the world largest wetland. It's in the right. central Siberia. And also, so in the Arctic, our region, we have only uh, at least 20th century average annual precipitation was 200 millimeters. So what, uh, eight inches a year. Yeah, so that, that's not much. That's absolutely not much, but still we have uh, more lakes than people in our state. So there are millions <laughs> of lakes and lakes, lakes everywhere. And so wet. So, and in the last... Since uh, a couple years ago, I noticed that hmm, now I can walk in the park and I rarely use rubber boots. And even though with the climate change, there is more precipitation in the summer. Uh, so the, the climate became wetter, but the soil in the park became drier. And the reason that uh, we are promoting growth of the uh, rapidly photosynthesizing plants and they're using up the water and drying up the soil and we have much drier soil. The, the grass uses more water. It, it, it sort of throws down its root system, takes up that water, turns it into leaves and photosynthesis, and then the animals eat it. Yes, well, mostly they use water, so the water is evaporated. So the photosynthesis is actually a very inefficient natural mechanism. The problem is that to catch one molecule of CO2 from the atmosphere, the leaf 
has to leave have has to lose 400 molecules of water. Right. So it's just like let's say just the uh, molecule of CO2 is huge and molecule of water is is small. And through one hole, if you have let's say the hole and you need to kind of throw in one direction one big molecule of CO2 at the same time lots of <coughs> molecules of water will fall out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> That's kind of the problem of the mechanism. Oh, I see. So so then the grass the grass sort of having more leaf surface area doing more photosynthesis actually just ends up evaporating a lot of the water. Yeah. Yeah. So the water is pumped from the ground and evaporated into the air. How does that affect um sort of the aridity of the climate there? Like does does the grass make the climate more dry? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I don't think that there is uh, this this much effect. They make soils drier. I'm not sure that our actual air hum- humidity is really that much affected by by plants. Hmm, interesting. So the main so the main drivers always been the oceans. Right. So the warm oceans are the ones which are forming all the clouds and may, maybe you know maybe if on the long long big scale maybe there would be uh, if you convert the entire Sahara into the uh, green photosynthesizing. Landscape, maybe the climate even the climate would change, but I think there are bigger specialists than me in this question who can answer you better. But but you've seen basically a, a substantial change in the local ecosystem towards this this high productivity grassland mode. Yes. Um, not completed yet, but on its way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, indeed, and uh, we also we faced you know over the uh, since we started the park since my dad started the park. Uh, his original vision, I think he was more optimistic that it would be very easy to convert. And with, you just introduce animals and a couple years later, everything is great. And when we start practically doing that, we faced multiple problems that, you know, animal adaptation with uh, a vegetation kind of conversion. And we saw that actually we don't really have lots of <coughs> grasses in our region. So to start with, I had <clears throat> we had some uh, cut in the forest where we were building fence, and on there it's a fertile. We have a fertile ground, and there was no uh, mosses, and the grasses were growing very poorly there. And I was wondering why. If you know, nutrients are all right, the <clears throat> there is no anyone to compete with. Why we don't have much grasses? And then I think it was two or three years ago when we brought yaks, we made a little temporary fence area for them for the quarantine. And we kept them there for just a few days, and we were feeding them oats, so the grains. And uh, then they moved out. Well, we let them go. And a month later, I came came to this place, and I see that there is a whole crop field of oats growing in this place. <laughs> right. So the problem was not that we don't have a good soil or we don't have animals. The problem that we didn't have any seeds. So in this uh, originally large forest, there's just not enough uh, seed pool of uh, good grasses and herbs is very poor, and for us right. it's also a problem. We need to introduce not only the animals, <clears throat> but we actually need to introduce the plants as well. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because the the plants are at uh, the the ones that you're kind of desiring have been mostly wiped out of the ecosystem. Even if there's a few of them, they don't have uh, enough of a presence to seed the area fast enough. Yeah. So and there is you know you can't really buy. Uh, industrial, in, let's say in industrial numbers, the seeds of Arctic plants anywhere in the world. It's, it's, they're not <laughs> right. in the market. And, you know, you have to go into some different, <clears throat> in the autumn, different locations in the region where you know there is some small patches of grasslands and collect the grass there and well, the seeds there and spread them out. 
Let's talk then a little bit uh, before we get too much further about the the permafrost aspect of this thing. Because I know, so we've talked a little bit about how this ecosystem is sort of higher biological productivity. It's the natural norm. Um, You know, it sequesters more carbon, but but also there's this aspect, you know, very, very um, urgent aspect in the Arctic of the thawing permafrost. And um, if I remember, your, your project addresses that to some degree by the animals actually help keep the permafrost maintained by stamping down the, the, the snow in the winter. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So it's very beneficial to have this ecosystem in the Arctic. But the fact that this ecosystem existed from, let's say, 50,000 years ago to <clears throat> the end of the Holocene, uh, is actually now the huge threat to uh, to us. Uh, and the reason that, as you already said, the ecosystem sequesters carbon quite well. <clears throat> and if you sequester carbon for 30,000 years non-stop, right. you actually can accumulate lots of carbon. <laughs> right. So there was, in our region, was developing this, uh, this permafrost. There was alluvial sediments, not alluvial, aeolian sediments accumulating every year. And this formed... 40, 50, 50 meters, sometimes even 60 meters thick uh, strata. And since there have always been uh, this grazing ecosystem on top of it, they uh, stored enormous amounts of organic uh, matter in the, in, the, well, in the soil and then in the permafrost. And it preserved till now. And the estimates vary, but I think this, uh, let's say, it's pretty much twice the amount of uh, all the CO2 which we have in the atmosphere right now is stored in the permafrost. Right. And the problem that with the climate change, uh, the temperature of permafrost is following the temperature of the annual air temperatures. Right. So, and the Arctic is warming twice as rapidly, more than twice as rapidly as the rest of the world. Yeah. In our region, over the last uh, 35 years, I think the climate warmed by 3 degrees. So same did permafrost. Yeah. Also, with the climate change, we have more precipitation, as I already said. And we, on average, have increased uh, density of snow, uh, thickness of snow in the winter. And thickness of snow is the main parameter to define the temperature of permafrost. The more snow you have the less cold is penetrated to the ground in the winter. Right. So the easier, the warmer permafrost gets. So combination of increased temperature and increased snow depth is causing very sharp increase in temperature of permafrost. And a couple years ago, we had three years in a row, lots of lots of snow and very warm winters. And this provoked even in our region. So we are located uh, above the Arctic Circle. Uh, There is probably couple, at least a couple thousand kilometers south of us, there is still some permafrost. So we are like deep inside the continuous permafrost area. <laughs> Even in our region, we got some places where the uh, active layer, so the active layer, it's the top layer of soil, which uh, refreeze every winter. So the per- permafrost is, I don't know, 600 meters deep entirely hour, and this top meter refreeze always. And uh, a couple of years ago, it didn't. So that provoked the degradation of some, some surface permafrost, mm-hmm. which is, was kind of very, very bad. And the problem is that once, if and once the permafrost is degraded, 
all this organic matter will become the source of greenhouse gases. So as soon as, soon as uh, organic matter thaws, uh, microbes awaken and start decomposing it and convert into greenhouse gases. Right. Let's say projections vary, but I think uh, the estimates are somewhere in the range between the 20% of the entire anthropogenic emission to 200% of entire anthropogenic emission a year. Yeah, right. If if uh, if the permafrost starts really thawing. Yeah. So for for few decades, it will be, at, let's say, doubling the amount of anthropogenic greenhouse gases, which will be a huge disaster. Yeah, that's uh, right. That that would be very disastrous. Um, and and so then. The animals um, help prevent this. The, yes. The, like the particularly through trampling down of the snow, there's enough of the animals that they can actually um, help keep the permafrost frozen. Yes. Yeah, so uh, the thinner the snow, the uh, colder is permafrost. <clears throat> so let's see. The average temperature of uh, air in my region when I was a kid was minus eleven. On average over the year now it increased to minus eight right at the same time the temperature of permafrost was minus six <clears throat> now it's minus three right so uh, there is this three degree warm in both cases but there is this five degree gap between uh, temperature of air and temperature of permafrost so permafrost is five degrees warmer and the main reason for that is the snow so if imagine there would be no snow at all the temperature of permafrost and temperature of air would be pretty much the same. So minus 8 minus, or minus 8 minus 8. And the thinner you get the snow, the lower is the gap. So the animals that are trampling down the snow as they graze, they they looking for food all year round and they uh, harvest. And when they dig through the snow, they trample it down. And instead of 50 centimeters, you get only 10 centimeters. And that dramatically allow uh, kind of increasing the freezing of soil and permafrost in the winter and cooling the permafrost. Right. Of course, this is, let's say, if the climate change will be going on the worst case scenario and we'll have plus eight degrees by the end of the century, you can have as many animals as you want, but you will not preserve the, the permafrost. Right. As soon as, let's say, average annual temperature is above zero, permafrost cannot exist under any circumstances. Right. So there is a kind of limiting factor, but if the climate change will go on the, let's say, average projected scenarios, we can uh, slow down permafrost degradation or even stop it. Yeah, and and uh, and at the same time sequester some of the carbon and and um, restore the the older natural ecosystem. Uh, there is uh, four main mechanisms how uh, the grazing ecosystems are cooling the climate. So the first one, well, it's not cooling, it's not ma making it warmer by preserving permafrost, the rapid one. Second is uh, developing uh, soils, so by storing more carbon in them, so uh, growing roots. And third, quite important, I think, is it's called albedo effect. So it's uh, uh, grasslands are lighter than forest. So the darker the surface, the more energy it absorbs, sun energy it absorbs and converts into heat. The lighter the surface, surface, the more energy it reflects back and staying cold. So like, uh, you know, if you touch in the summer day white surface, it will be cold. If you touch hot, uh, well, I mean black surface, it will be uh, burning hot. So same here. 
And if in the summer, let's say it's a shade of, of gray, of, of green, uh, then in the winter, it's uh, the forest is gray and the steps are white. Right. And in the spring, in April and May, we already have lots of lots of sun, but uh, still snow on the ground. And at this period, we measured that we have on average for six weeks, about 160 watts on each square meter is reflected back to space from grasslands versus the large forest. And that's quite important. So uh, I know that in our region, the we the summer starts late in tundra compared with the forest zone. Mm-hmm. So the kind of the trees in the, in the spring are getting rapidly warmed by the by the sun. That's then the uh, the value of this ecosystem project is if it works, we we potentially um, have a way to you know restore this ecosystem and and it really could have an impact on on the global warming question. Yes. Yeah, so uh, if you have more light surfaces on your ground, uh, I think if uh, right now somebody will paint and our entire planet white, I think we will uh, average temperature of the planet will go below below zero centigrade, so below freezing. Yeah, if you somehow covered the whole Earth in, in snow. Yes, and uh, the problem in the Arctic now that for its Arctic ice is melting, which is white. And now the open water, and the open water is much darker, and it absorbs heat much better. And there are some projects where people try to restore uh, Arctic ice, because the warmer it is, the less ice, the less ice, the warmer it is. So it's uh, uh, one of the positive feedbacks. Yeah. So same with permafrost degradation. The warmer it is, the more permafrost degrade. The more permafrost degrade, the warmer it is. So I guess if, if, uh, if your project is successful... And people become convinced that this is a valuable thing to be doing. What do what do the prospects look like of kind of rolling this out on a larger scale? So right now, you know, you've got your five thousand acres or something there. Um, what what does this look like? You know, trying to get this across a substantial chunk of the Arctic. You know, if if this became one of the major or one of the efforts that, that was being undertaken in, in this sort of uh, solving climate change and, and geoengineering uh, sort of approach, what, um, how, how difficult would it be to scale it up? Or, or what, what would that look like? Uh, I don't think that in Russia it would be extremely uh, hard to scale up. Uh, first of all, the main reason that majority of the land which we are planning to convert uh, does not have uh, any. I say there would be wouldn't be much conflicts of interest. Yeah, it's it's basically useless land right now. Yeah, it's a useless. There is very few people living in the Russian Arctic. Uh, there is a few towns of Kolma River. It's a huge river, uh, not as big as Lena, for instance, or Yenisei, but still very big. And I think the total population of people living in this watershed is I don't know, maybe fifteen thousand people total. So very yeah, few. Yeah, that's not very many. So pretty much not nobody. And there is no economical profit from this territory at the moment. And if we prove that what we are making will have <clears throat> kind of social profit, economical profit and environmental profit, I think that's that can be manageable. Uh, the thing that's needed is to 
uh, yes, have a governmental support, have uh, enough financial support, and enforce no no poaching and kind of educational park to get edu educational part that to allow people to understand that what we're making is important and you don't need just to take a gun and kill them all. Right. As people have been doing in the past always. Uh, kind of, I think that's feasible. In many, for instance, you cannot uh, convert a huge ecosystem in the urban areas where millions and millions of people live. That's, I know that's, that's utopia. People will not ever overstep through their kind of personal needs. But here it's a, uh, we don't step on anyone's blister. And I think that's possible to scale up. And one of the big work that we do is not, you know, our project is small. I myself cannot create a sustainable ecosystem. Right. Because my kind of my resources are limited. But I can prove, try to convince other people and other people maybe convincing other people that this is important. And together, maybe we can raise enough resources to get governmental support, to get uh, support from, I know, big corporations who would be agreeing to invest money. Because even, you know, even in terms of the carbon market that can give profit, you know, we are uh, sequestering carbon in the soil out there in the Arctic. Right. Which is a good thing. And if you're investing money into that, you can maybe get a carbon credit for that. Right. So there is some potential for, for big money. Also, imagine if you have a you know, Serengeti out there in the Arctic, it's also a good tourism attraction. Also, if you have 10 ton biomass per square kilometer, maybe at some, let's say, sustainable rates, that can be a, a sustainable rates of I know, harvesting, you can get a sustainable meat industry. Yeah, well, right. I mean, if you, there's just enormous amounts of land there in, in the Arctic. And if you can get, yeah, 10 tons of biomass, you know, animal biomass per, per kilometer, that's, yeah, you, you take a little bit off the top of that. And, and yeah, you have, you have tons of meat to feed people. Yeah, so a local environment, kind of it's a tourism, it's a, I think it can be profitable for native people because native people, you know, uh, it's funny, but our native people, uh, many of them are getting their main profits actually because because of the Mama Step ecosystem. They're uh, receiving profit from the grazing ecosystem, which uh, died 15,000 years ago. So the modern ecosystem does not give them much profit. But the ecosystem which died 15,000 years ago does. You know, they're looking for Mama Ivory. Right. And selling that. So, so it's a kind of funny point that, you know, we're trying to revive ecosystem, which is even 15,000 15, years after its death is still giving more profit than the modern ecosystem which we have now. Right. Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's amazing. Um, I, I mean, I, I really like the, the idea of this kind of project because it's very much about um, using the the kind of natural forces that that already exist and and are sort of uh, somewhat proven uh, and and have many side benefits to to solve some of our problems like global warming and so on and and so it sort of fits into this vision of how we might uh, manage the planet going forward kind of. Um, instead of taking this very hands off, you know, whatever we, we inherited from 200 years ago is, is the natural state and just leaving it at that, taking a sort of a more active strategic shaping of the climate, but also 
preservation of a complex and highly productive ecosystem. It's, it's something that seems very appealing as a way to solve the problem if it could actually have a big impact. There is uh, still much science to be done around the poison park, so and about behind the theory, and uh, we are working on that. And still, maybe there is some criticism to the idea. Many people like trees, but <clears throat> let's say the sad reality that if you if we don't do not anything, it's clear that the permafrost will degrade, and it will emit lots of carbon, and our life will be much worse. And let's say nothing to do policy, just don't work. And you may argue that how feasible is it to create a park or how feasible it is to create a sustainable ecosystem in the Arctic. But it's, I can say maybe it's hard. I'm not sure, not 100% guarantee that we will succeed. But if we don't do that, we are definitely in big trouble. Right. Yeah, the the, uh, the permafrost is a, a very serious problem or a very serious potential problem. It's about permafrost and also just the globally the problem of the climate change. Yeah. If you don't do anything, kind of we are in trouble. So even the, I think there is many, many actions should be taken. And even though, let's say, it's worth to try even the crazy ones. And I don't think that ours is, is crazy. Yeah, it's certainly not that crazy. Um yeah, I mean, I guess this this relates then, um, you know, people do really like the trees. They, for some reason, people associate kind of the, the trees as, as the most um, the most sort of effective thing. There's always these big initiatives, you know, plant lots of trees to solve global warming. But uh, but I, I mean, your project actually sounds to me a lot more convincing than the, the tree planting initiatives. No, I think that, you know, in some regions, uh, mostly in the tropics, the pl- planting of trees, it's, uh, it's will really help. So yeah, yeah. I'm not arguing against that. But uh, it's, I think somewhere as you go from tropics to the Arctic, there is a growing efficiency of steps in terms of carbon sequestration and uh, declining of uh, kind of efficiency in terms of trees. In right. our region, for just for comparison, I'll tell you. So even in the modern ecosystem where the large dominated, uh, the pretty much the maximum above ground biomass is only two kilograms per square meter, even uh-huh. in the large forest. So the trees are sparse. So when we're talking about trees, like you know, knocking down the trees in our region, it's not a tree as you see it in the you know, temperate climate. Right. They're much smaller and they're quite ugly. And they're slowly, very, very slowly growing. And at the same time, even in their poor, poor soils, it's 10 to 16 kilograms. So above ground, it's 2. Below ground, it's 10 to 16. In the grasslands, uh, in the park, we already have 26 and in some, on average. And in some places, it's 16, 70 kilograms per square meter in the top meter. And I think potentially we can get it over 100. Uh, like a hundred, hundred kilograms of of roots in the top meter of soil. Yeah, so organic. It's not only roots; it's uh, organic matter. So in the in the active layer. So it's maybe a meter, maybe a bit more than a meter. So it's a, let's say, on each square meter we can get, I think potential is around uh, about a hundred. Where the let's say at the time when decomposition will become equal to input. Yeah. So there is, and on surface only two. So we can get let's say tens of kilograms inside the soil while, while if you start planting trees we will get maximum two kilograms and probably it will burn in the next century yeah that that's the the challenge with trees is you have these big 
you know, tundras uh, covered in trees. You think you've got a lot of carbon stored there, but then it, someone lights it on fire or it gets struck by lightning and, and it all goes up in smoke. Yes. Yeah, and, and so I guess the other place that, that this kind of approach would be appropriate besides Russia is Canada. Um, Northern Canada, I mean, it's part of the trees. The reason I bring up the trees is, is that I think tree planting is one of the initiatives that uh, the Canadian government is talking about. Um, and, and perhaps if they had, you know, knowledge of your project, um, they would consider kind of uh, these other approaches of restoring the, the high productivity well, grasslands. For this particular reason, I think there is actually would be quite good to have uh, really good science done behind it. So in different maybe regions, test and see uh, what's the kind of uh, combination, how the carbon content in the soil and in above ground vegetation change over time in different ecosystems and which one is the most profitable. Because there is indeed this uh, kind of religious uh, feelings of people towards the trees. So the trees are always good, the forest is always good. Right. And that's not always true. So I'm not saying that's kind of not entirely kind of, yeah. I'm not a tree hater. <laughs> but I'm not a tree hugger as well. Yeah. But in some, some cases you need to just see what in which landscape, what ecosystems are the most suitable and profitable for us. We yeah. have, you know, we have, we have to admit that we are the dominant species on the planet. We are shaping the planet and we're doing that all the time. Yeah. And at the moment, the way we managed our uh, planet in the last several centuries or you know, even 10,000 years, we are now at a uh, full speed going towards the cliff on the tree. Yeah. And Right now, we need to reshape and change the, our kind of behavior towards the planet and change the uh, practices which we take. And even, you know, we've been changing ecosystems all the time. Yeah. We've done it forever. But maybe now it's time to do it wisely. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's a very uh, resonating message for me. I mean, yeah, we, we have been changing things a lot. And, and so people have this idea of, Oh, well, we just need to, you know, stop polluting, stop industrializing, stop growing, um, stop doing the damage to the ecosystem and then like let the earth take care of it. But I think that's kind of a, a false approach. We've already kind of vastly changed everything and we're constantly vastly changing it. And and we're not going to be able to, you know, have zero impact. And that's not really desirable either. But what we can do is choose what kind of impact we have, choose which kind of impact is desirable um and and this kind of experiment you know what you're doing with pleistocene park is uh you know a, a very interesting and exciting experiment uh from from that perspective of like you know let's let's try out this this great idea which is you know resurrecting this uh ancient ecosystem that that was a much more higher productivity mode and has the potential to solve many of our problems with global warming and, and permafrost thawing. And then just on, on the tree question, I, I sort of, even on aesthetic, aesthetic grounds, like, you know, when people imagine trees, they imagine these temperate rainforests, huge trees, but, but that's in, in these Arctic regions, that's not really what it's like. It, it, the trees are, like you said, these kind of stunted, ugly, endless expanses of, of, gray kind of nothingness whereas um you know just personally speaking the 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 step or the or as you described the savannah kind of uh 
ecosystem is is in some ways more appealing even aesthetically it just kind of a, it feels like a a friendlier place in some way monkeys evolved into humans actually also with a stop with a kind of expansion of grasslands so monkeys lived on the on the trees and when the uh, the uh, tree uh, areas shrinked with uh, invasion of steps so millions of years ago some monkeys had to kind of get down and learn how to live in this uh, step, in a high productive grazing ecosystem environment. And that's where we evolved into straight walking, and that's where we learned how to use the tools. Yeah. And uh, finally developed. So uh, the ecosystems we, which we are trying to create, create, revive, it's actually, you know, it's uh, our homeland ecosystem. Yeah. So it's... we evolved in this ecosystem, that's our kind of natural habitat. And, uh, you know, we do have many people who support the idea of the Poison Park, and not only because of the climate change. And that's, you know, I have some feeling that people who support it because the idea, kind of the picture which they have in their head, is actually maybe having some sort of genetic memory. <laughs> right. But, you know, as you said, like aesthetically, you said that aesthetically, savanna look nicer than the large forest. And I totally agree with you. And I think many people might feel the same. Yeah. That they, they like the place like that and kind of the whole concept of its animals. Yeah, and and, and certainly um, better better than the the sort of uh, you know the, the deserts that have taken over a lot of the area that used to be uh, these these savannas and steppes. I mean, because even outside the Arctic, this this concept I guess would apply in places like um you know for further south in in russia and some of those arid regions in in central asia and you know places like the sahara and so on those would be sort of more radical projects but you could imagine similar initiatives being done at some point to restore those ecosystems as well yes there is a actually uh even more uh, complicated there because I think there to have a rain, you need to have this uh, this like lo local operation on the kind of big enough scale. Uh, if in our case we can start with let's say small park and slowly expand it in right. size, uh, I think to stop desertification you have to have a massive like one year investment to the huge areas. Right. With uh, and to kind of to make this the tipping point the hill let's say is much taller in their cases. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, but uh, indeed, I think there is, but you know, the problem is that there is very few science still behind it. Right. Uh, we don't really know how to restore ecosystems. We don't know how to, uh, what exact uh, things kind of will get impacted, what will impact our project as well. So in our case, uh, we are, you know, it's, we are like a blind cat. Right. Trying to find the way out. So we are kind of like hitting the corners all the time. And with, uh, for instance, without bringing animals, it's always like, oh, let's see, maybe let's try this one. We can afford this animal, so let's try and see if they would adapt well. Well, okay, that can work, or, or it doesn't work. Or, okay, here is a problem which we didn't expect. So there is very few knowledge, and there is not that many people who can you know, share the knowledge, and there is not that many scientific papers which are helpful in our work. And right. that's kind of an, another thing that we really encourage people to do all this kind of, uh, you know, ecosystem restoration research. Yeah, and, and so this, uh, if you guys can prove the concept, the feasibility of the concept and, and show, you know, how to do it, 
um, then presumably other projects could get started in other areas. Yeah. Um, and, and, and is this connected, like you occasionally hear things about regenerative uh, agriculture and regenerative pasturing of, of cattle and so on. I think with a similar idea of, of sort of managing the land in a different way with respect to the animals to, to be a more uh, healthy yes, equilibrium. Uh, I think, so there, there is the Saver Institute. I think maybe you're referring to them, holistic management or how it's called. Uh, there is, I heard lots of criticism about the ideas, but uh, overall, uh, I think they're kind of on the right path. Uh, our farming and grazing techniques historically haven't been ideal. Yeah. And if there are attempts to make it better and more efficient, then I think it's a good practice. Yeah, and, uh, and more sustainable. I mean, because yeah. the big problem is is the way it depletes the the way our modern sort of farming and grazing depletes the soil over over a period of, of decades or centuries. The problem that, let's say, we're, the idea which we use is similar. We just, let's say, what we propose is different methods. Uh, they are working with farmers, and I think the main idea is to make sure there is no overgrazing of any uh, location in the any period of time. So if you have overall, if you have thousand hectares of land, and you have let's say thousand cows, and you know the thousand hectares is enough for thousand cows, for instance, in your region. But in order to be sustainable, you need to divide that thousand hectares into let's say twelve little fenced areas, and move cattle from one to another every month. Right. And this way it will be sustainable. If you just leave them all the thousands and one thousand, as I said, without predators, they would stay in one place and overgraze and then overgraze the other places the next year. And a few years later, you have no good grasslands left. Yeah, it just and, turns to mud. Yes. What we propose to do is let's introduce predators and they will do the job. Uh, they said, let's introduce fences and shepherds. Right. So, well, of course, in, you know, in their case there, it's a... Uh, artificial ecosystems so they cannot have predators we are talking about we are creating wild ecosystems so predators are they're better than fences clearly they're better they know you know they've been evolutionating for millions of years and they know how to pasture animals way better than we do <laughs> right yeah yeah the uh, the predators are the experts and they're also self-replicating you don't have to pay for them <laughs> Exactly. Well, no, no, you, you actually have to pay for them. Oh, if you, you have a thousand cows, they will take hundreds of them. It's also a price. You mean, um, no, I mean, I mean, in your case, in the Pleistocene Park case, you, the predators, basically, uh, you don't have to. Well, I guess you got to pay for them in the animals, but but it's not yes. coming out of well, the budget. You know, animals for any farmer for even and for us, we bring animals, we pay money for them. They're extremely expensive after traveling thousands and thousands and thousands of kilometers. And right. Well, we don't have predators yet. We are, I think we will start now, let's say we are at about 150 animals in the park. Uh, I think we will start uh, with predators when we are around 1,000. So we need slightly better uh, grasslands. So we need grasslands where animals can sustain. So first we need to create that. We need to have at least a certain number of animals to have the more or less sustainable populations. And after that, we will slowly introduce predators. That would be things like wolves. Yes, wolves and probably some big cat. There are two options. There is either a more tiger uh, or actually African lion. Do you think the African lion would uh, would do okay up there in the Arctic? According to what I heard from uh, one of the main uh, paleontologist geneticists in the US, 
uh, Beth Shapiro, she told me that the genetics of this cave lion, which was found, this big cat which was living in our environment in the Pleistocene, so in the Ice Age, in the cold Ice Age, uh, is identical to the African lion genome. So it was African lion. Interesting. Yeah, so that'll be that would be quite the sight, <laughs> seeing. Yeah, uh, it's now you know only now uh, those lions exist only in Africa, but uh, I know that in Novosibirsk, so it's a central Siberian town. There is a big and good zoo, and for fifty years they have a population of lions living outside year round, and out there it drops down to minus forty. Uh huh. And for lions, it's not a problem. Wow. So, okay. So then, yeah. So at, at a thousand animals, you'll start to bring in predators to chase them around. Yeah. Of course, you know, for now, like, uh, there is, I think, with introducing predators, there will be some uh, difficulties in terms of getting permissions. And for that, we will probably need some governmental approval. Right. But, you know, for instance, with Amur tigers, Amur tigers are nearly extinct in the uh, next to China border. Right. And there is, I think... At least the last I heard was around 400 species in the wild left only. Right. And the reason they are trying to save the tigers, but, you know, in reality, they need to save the deer. The main problem, there is not an, enough forage for, well, not enough prey for tigers. Yeah. And if we will provide somewhere here enough prey for them, I'm sure they would be happy. Right. So for the next while, as you kind of expand, buy more animals, you mentioned the animals are very expensive to get them in there. Um, How's uh, how's your fundraising working these days? I think you mentioned um, doing a doing a crowdfunding campaign of some kind. Yes. Yeah, so uh, two weeks ago we launched the campaign on Patreon. So it's patreon.com uh, Park. Uh, so you can you're kind of all invited to come and join. Yeah, we'll and, provide a link. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so this money we will be uh, raising for the just general support uh, of animals and helping them to adapt because uh, bringing animals. And if you raise uh, enough, we also uh, gather money for transportation of animals. And so in the nearest plans to bring in animals are uh, so few horses. We want to kind of diversify the genetics of our herds. Uh, then we want to bring muskox. So we had muskox in the park for several years, but we brought only six of them right. in 2010. And there was a series of say, bad circumstances which led us to have only six males. Uh oh, yeah. And, and yes, and the six males cannot create a, a herd. And for several years they live, were living in the park, but then uh, they learned how to lift up the fence and leave, and we would trying to chase them back and did it several times and then we like just gave up well you know since anyway we cannot have the herd and they you know they tr try to wander away to find themselves somebody to mate i cannot stop them and uh yeah they get we, lonely yes we did bring 12 bison from uh american step bison from denmark last spring which was our the longest expedition we ever did, which was, what, 35 days and how many? 15,000 kilometers, I think, the distance was. Uh, but it would be great if you would raise money to bring more because, you know, for the project we are making, so our kind of ultimate goal, well, first goal is to have a self-sustainable, high-productive grazing ecosystem in the Arctic. And second, 
is to make it big enough so it will start affect the global climate. Right. So, but and for that, you know, 12 dozen of bison is nothing. So we need more. And yeah. we are uh, indeed trying to find ways to get financial support for the park because that's the main limiting factor. We don't have many governmental restrictions. We don't have any rules. We don't have any <clears throat> angry neighbors. All we need to develop is actually somebody to help us with finances because uh, we are channeling all, channeling all the money which we get running the Arctic Research Station. But, you know, as far as I know, we are the only uh, not, uh, private for-profit Arctic Research Station. And I can tell you that it doesn't generate too much of profit. <laughs> right. So we cannot, let's say, the pace at which we develop the park is nothing compared to what we want. And that's why we are always, well, now trying to look for some external funding. And this Patreon campaign is one of that. And maybe we are trying to contact now some maybe big corporations who may be interested in. Yeah. Yeah. Corporations are often interested in, in supporting this kind of research. They yeah. Can... But it's, uh, I, you know, I live in a remote Arctic station somewhere in the middle of the Arctic and they have no idea how to get, I don't have, uh, you know, Bill Gates email number <laughs> or, right. or telephone number. So kind of very often the corporations are there may be interested, but they don't know. Maybe that may, maybe they don't know about you or you kind of, you don't know how to get to that. And that's a big problem. So if somebody out there listening and know how to, can think of good people or good corporations who might be interested and are willing to advocate for us, it would be great. Right. Great. Well, I, I hope you guys have good luck. I'm really looking forward to the future of the project. Um, it's very exciting. I think it represents uh, a great vision of how to deal with global warming and, and envi other environmental problems. Um, so I think with that, we can wrap it up. I think I've, uh, I've asked all the questions I'm interested in. If you have anything final to say, um, we can do that now. But otherwise, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, uh, thanks, thanks, uh, thanks a lot for the invitation. It was a great time and thanks for good questions. It's nice to speak with a person who, who knows the topic. All right, thanks a lot so much for coming on. Yeah, sure. Bye.